Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman and this week I spoke with music producer Greg Fiddleman who recently finished Metallica's new album Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Now this is Metallica's first studio album since 2008 and this is not the first time Greg has worked with the band. He worked as an engineer and mixer on Death Magnetic and was the co-producer, engineer and mixer on Lulu, the band's collaboration with the late Lou Reed. Greg also oversaw the band's live soundtrack to the first ever feature film, Through the Never. Greg has also worked with other bands such as Slayer, Black Sabbath, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Bush, Audio Slave, Marilyn Manson, Slipknot, and System of a Down. I hope you enjoy our talk. Thanks, Greg, for sitting down and talking yeah. with me. I'd love just to know, just start off in terms of your background. I mean, it, it seems that this is definitely not a new forte for you to be as a music producer. You've well, it just you've had so many different hats you've worn. Right. Uh, at least when when um, I first met you a few years ago, when you were working on through the never, but uh, at least your music producer hat. What's the what's the story with that? Well, I mean, it's it, it's certainly something that I've strived to do for a while, um, but my my arc, for lack of a better word, doing stuff in music starts as being a, a guy in a band playing mm-hmm. guitar and made a few records doing that. And so it's sort of when that sort of came to a logical end, um, I realized I made a couple albums with some good producers mm-hmm. and I felt like, you know, making the album maybe was funner than playing the songs in front of 80 people in Des Moines or whatever <laughs> it was. And I thought, this seemed like a logical next step for me. So and I kind of, in trying to figure out how that was going to happen, I got into engineering. I was always kind of an engineer guy anyways, you know, always did the band's demos and whatever. So I just sort of, you know, it was a bit of an adventure going through learning how to engineer and getting jobs in real studios. And, um, you know, I sort of came up, I was an assistant engineer at Sound City in like 95, 96. Who was coming of, through the studio then? Um, a lot of Rick Rubin stuff is where I started, mm-hmm. sort of got it together with Rick, but it was a time like the second Johnny Cash record was in and out of there. Tom mm-hmm. Petty and the Heartbreakers did a record. Cheryl Crow did her second, that was her second album, mm-hmm. was in and out of there. A lot of cool people, Garth Richardson, Sylvia Massey, mm-hmm. Dave Sardi. So, I got I met a lot of people that I later on worked with yeah, on yeah. other projects as well outside of that place, but that was sort of where it sort of came together and and at that time at Sa- at Sound City it was extremely rare to see a Pro Tools rig coming to that building so this is like ninety ninety five yeah at very end of I mean, digital that was just the very I mean that place was it, like yeah. two inch tape machines yeah, yeah. I mean if you hooked to be if you had two machines going at once with time code it was kind of like a, it was a weird <laughs> the thing future it was is like, now. right so yeah. you know it's such an old school place yeah. so when i started engineering there i was had some engineer friends of mine that i knew that were getting into pro tools and maybe they weren't so much into the rock world more like r&b and stuff mm. but those genres sort of embraced that a little bit before i'm not, I'm not saying that people weren't using pro tools yeah, in sure. rock but not at Sound City very much anyways. Yeah. So I sort of got into that and I saw that as like a cool way to augment the way we were making records. And I got into Pro Tools and I sort of, that was sort of my first way out. I mean, I was in, you know, first gigs there really were engineering, did this first System of a Down record I worked on with Rick and other things like that. But um, 
sort of my first big adventure out of being a staff guy mm-hmm. was being a sort of a, a guy that could help get stuff edited and utilize Pro Tools in whatever way it needed to be in the rock world, which again, you know, at that time, it was only a few guys were really doing it. I mean, that was a pretty amazing time for rock music in terms of what people were, the sound. Yeah. It was yeah. It was that transition of the Seattle sound. Right, yeah. It's it right was, at, the, yeah. Yeah, at the tail of that, yeah. I guess you could say, yeah. So for you, when you were thinking of making a career out of this, what was the pivotal moment for you when it was like, what was the album, I guess? What was the project? I mean, it, it was there wasn't one. It was it's, it's always been something that I wanted to do. I mean, really, mm-hmm. I guess some of the, the, you know, I was in a rock band. We were straight ahead rock band. Yeah. I was, I was I'm totally into metal when I was, you know, growing up in junior high and high school and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I came from. But I always listened to other kinds of music as well. Mm-hmm. And appreciated other kinds of music. It wasn't necessarily what I played, mm-hmm. but it was what I, I listened to. Lots of different kinds of stuff. Sound City was cool. It was a, I was, I got to see how people made like the Johnny Cash projects that came through there early on when I was there were sort of eye opening in that they were you know, the, the level of musicianship was like A plus mm-hmm. plus, and the level of engineering was A plus. I mean, everybody was top notch, and to see. To see that go down at that level was inspiring. So, mm-hmm. um, those are some of the scenarios that really got me excited about taking it to the next level. So, how did you meet Metallica? How, when did you guys cross paths? I mean, I meet Metallica on the Death Magnetic project, uh-huh. and I've been doing a lot of records, engineering a lot of records for Brick at mm-hmm. that time. Um, two thousand eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. And this is sort of, I think, on the on the heels of the. the I mean, the slip, not the first Slipknot record that I worked on with Rick, which was when was that in two thousand three or four or something? Okay. I guess right, um, the Volume Three record, and I, I think the guys were fans of that record. So when they wanted to work with Rick, I think they were also hip on working with me and Rick. Sort of, it was uh, who, who's, you know, who did this Volume yeah, Three yeah, thing. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's how I sort of got in, got invited in, and. And in all, it was a bit of a whirlwind. I mean, Rick had already been doing pre-pro with them. I kind of came in like the very tail of pre-production. And mm-hmm. I mean, I met them here in this building at HQ. Mm-hmm. I came up here for like two days, mm. two quick rehearsals. Yeah. Then went back to LA. And I think like two weeks later, they showed up in LA and we started tracking. So it wasn't, I wasn't, didn't, you know, it, there was no um, no dating period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, we just kind of went for it. Yeah. yeah. What can you say in terms of, you know, how did you see yourself as being a part of the Metallica family? Like, how, how did that evolve? I mean, you know, we got along, I would say, pretty much from the onset. But, mm-hmm. you know, with a established band has been around for a long time like that. You know, I don't think you get um, put into the fold super right. fast. Yeah. Um, but that record took a while, and I sort of, you know, I slowly but surely got the trust of the guys. And we had a lot of fun. And, you know, Rick is a producer that likes to sort of not be there for every note of every song so there was a lot of time where it was me and them and I think there's where we sort of developed and we we have it was I guess it's not surprising but I wouldn't have known before then is I mean they're they're maybe a couple years older than me not much yeah yeah but we have very similar 
sort of similar backgrounds, certainly similar, like the music that got them mm. excited. I mean, Lars has some European experiences that are unique, but like me and James and me and Kirk, especially. Like, the stuff you came like, up with. And, just yeah. like just like stuff that I listened to when I was in high school is yeah, the yeah. exact same stuff that they were. So when they, they've got these sort of weird, sometimes rare references, like, oh yeah, I remember that record. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we could sort of bond that way too. Mm. And then from being a, a guitar player in a band, I mean, you know, obviously not a band at the level of Metallica, but um, just being, in, you know, being in a van, going across the country a bunch of times and doing that also sort of made it a little bit more comfortable for us to sort of hang out and trust each other. And mm. Something that, that I, when I was just looking back on just the band's history, I mean, they've had handfuls of albums, but then in 2012, they basically wrapped up their relationship with Warner Brother, Warner Music Group. Mm-hmm. and started Black and Records. How did that influence this album in a way that it was now theirs? Um, you know, I think the last couple records that they did, you know, even though they were still affiliated with Warner Music Group, I mean, pretty, I mean, I don't remember during Death Magnetic, I don't recall ever once there being anyone from the record company. I, I would love to be in the studio up. with that, 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 relate, that, that conversation. Know, yeah, so so in that sense, it's not so much different. It was already yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. weird and unique. Sure. And there certainly was never any like, you know, we got to be done by Tuesday kind of right. deadlines. I mean, their deadlines were always kind of loose. And even then, when I first met them, they had already sort of developed this kind of, you know, uh, trying to balance a personal life with a professional life in order to, be able to sustain right, this of throughout you know the course of time. So, so those things were so, sort of already in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I don't know that that made a big difference for the way we sort of approached things, or mm-hmm. didn't change the circumstances necessarily. But the thing that was definitely different, and I don't know that this is necessarily related to your question. Yeah, but, sure. But it's different. Is that um, they there was we were sure about one thing and. The, that was that we wanted to do the record here at HQ. Okay. I mean, I think at one point, even before we started. When did that come up first? That came up, um, I met with the guys. I mean, we had talked on and off, even through the like the Lou Reed thing, which we did We did mm-hmm. all the recording for Lou Reed, the Lou, the Lou, the Lou, Lou yeah. We did the mixing in LA, but um, we talked a little bit about it, so it wasn't a wasn't a brand new topic. Yeah. It wasn't super fresh by the time we really got into saying, you know, we want to do this here. But at the end of the Through the Never project, mm-hmm. Lars and James were sort of talk. I mean, we're talking about like what would you know what's wrong with HQ? Mm. Like, what, what do we need so that there's the only reason we aren't doing it here is because we don't want to be in Marin. But there's mm-hmm. no like, we don't have enough gear, the room right. isn't good enough, yeah. the blah, 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 you know, whatever. The distractions that Metallica has, they follow them around wherever yeah, they go. Sure, so, sure, sure. so there's no escaping that. So we had talked about that and it was like, you know, the console, it's not a, it wasn't a bad console. They had a, a G, like a, a yeah. smaller G, I guess you could call it. But yeah. it was kind of a little on the older side and, and, you know, these sort of privately owned studios, sometimes the maintenance sort of falls through the cracks, mm-hmm. especially they, they have so many ons and offs. And it really wasn't, it, it was really kind of crumbling. And it was on the smaller side, not that they need the biggest, I mean, this console now is, is 80 channels, but yeah. the one, the main thing I thought is like, we need more like Neve style mic pre. Yeah, sure. And we need, I, I think we need a bigger desk and it'd be good if it was a, you know, 
they're you know doing it in Pro Tools all the way with a leather band seats, like this. powered windows. It's, yeah, it's like they're not going to want to do it just in Pro Tools because they're used to being able to sit down and maybe yep. put their fingers on a fade or two. So, and I had been working on some nine Ks mm-hmm. um, before that. Even the the through the never stuff, some of that stuff was on a nine K and a J as well. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of hip to that. And I think you know what, this is the console that you guys should get. It's kill. It sounds great. It works good for this kind of music. It's big. It's very quick to move around. We could do rehearsals on this part of the desk, and we can have the album <laughs> up on this part of the desk. Like we can sort of multitask. Mm-hmm. And here's. The list of gear that I think we need, you know, they have a little mic shy and like I said, a couple mic pre shy. Sure. So that was like at the end of 2012. Okay. We had that conversation. This console sort of came in the beginning of 2013. Where was that? The desk before? It was in Switzerland. Oh, wow. Like by the Swiss-Italian border or something. There's an influence on this album. And it's impeccable shape. Yeah. It's a really late model uh, K9080. Okay. Yeah. Um so we had it installed here and then sort of they went on did some more random stuff and and we thought maybe in the mid that year we were going to start the record but it didn't happen we never really had a serious conversation but at the end of that year yeah we sat down they were in la for something and me james and lars sat down and had a little meeting we just just sort of chat about it and said you know this is you know, they were clear, like, we know, the thing we know for sure is we don't want to go to Los Angeles to do this record. Mm. We want to do the record at HQ. We're suited up. Yes, we're suited up. There was, that time there was still a couple things I think we needed, but yeah. for the most part, we knew what we were doing. And that was really the the marching orders were that we weren't going to necessarily have any marching orders. Mm-hmm. And which for them is is marching orders, you know, it's sort of is, is a plan. So... We're going to do it here. I'm going to come up and we're going to figure out how the schedule works and we're going to work on these songs and we're going to let the music do its thing naturally and we're going to try to have fun. That was for me, that was the biggest thing. It's like, if we're going to do it in your backyard and you guys can come to the studio in your pajamas. Yeah. You know, not literally. That's a joke. But, sure, sure, um, sure. We've got to have fun. Yeah. You know, so. Well, you're not paying for a studio time for blocking. Yeah, for and even with, yeah, that. yeah, and it's yeah. it's just so much easier. And if you know someone doesn't is, isn't into it after a couple hours, it's not that big. Right, exactly, it's not that big of a deal, right? You know, it's a little more natural for them as as sort of an unnatural studio experience. That really is, if you think if you distill it down to what's going on. <laughs> but but for the situation they're in, it was the most natural because mm. they could just come in and have fun, and that's really when you've been doing it for 35 years. Yeah, you got to be able yeah. to figure out where the fun is because yeah. that, that's what got them doing it in the first place, you know. I mean, the fact is, is that these guys tour, you know, something like fifty shows a year, right, all over the world. How did you? You said you start, you kind of put the the flag in the sand and said, "All right, we're going to start this thing." But then, when, at what point? Like, what is the writing? What is a quote unquote writing right. cycle like? Well, one of the other things that we did. So we talked at that meeting I'm talking about yeah. in LA before we even started. We also we talked about doing it here. Yeah. We also talked about this was not written in sand yet, but we this is the first time we really seriously discussed it. Was to not do it in the traditional way that most rock bands, certainly the way that Metallica does it in the past, where mm-hmm. okay, we write it's twelve, we're gonna come up with a number. Yeah, we're, yeah. Here's twelve songs. Okay, mm-hmm. now we're gonna rehearse these twelve songs pre-pro. Okay, now pre-pro's done. You know everyone dig up yeah now now we're tracking drums or you know basic tracks yeah and we're going to do all 12 songs and then we're going to until we get 
just layer by layer upon masters yeah. of those 12 then we're done with drums yeah for the most part and yeah. then we're going to go into overdub mode so in the guitars and bass over very segmented yeah yeah and that's the way they've done it in the past so right. what we decided we were going to try to do and i think it worked out i gotta say it worked out great mm-hmm. um we're going to do it in, in small batches so we picked two or three or four songs it ended up being three songs we did three songs four times and then we did a one more session where we did one extra mm-hmm. song so we sort of we wrote for a while a bunch of songs and then we picked a few and they're like hey let's do serious pre-pro on those three that we're going to record them blah, blah, mm. blah. so we did that recorded the drums for those three songs edited together our masters till everyone was happy uh, guitar over start guitar overdubs mm-hmm. bass overdub you know james you want to sing eh, i don't know if i've got lyric you know what let's work on the next batch of songs sure. first so we started the next so we had sort of these were 60 percent on the way there and then Back to drum mode. Did the same thing. Okay, now let's do some overdubs on these songs. And oh, you know what? I want to sing on one of the songs from the. So we sort of just kept moving around. Every couple of months, we did a few more songs. And so the this batch was always a little more done than that batch. Was a little more done than that batch. And it it worked out great for a couple of reasons. One, I think it it split up the pressure for you know Lars and doing drum tracks. Like, yeah. I mean, he gets pretty focused hyper focused and it's hard for him to get there so maybe that was a little bit weird at first for him mm-hmm. but i think it was better because he just had to give it his all for for a week or less really it was usually three or four days of tracking and then mm-hmm. we'd break and right start going to the next thing yeah. and the same thing with james where he sort of it wasn't like hey vocals start today or we're yeah, doing yeah, vocals yeah, for the yeah. next month or whatever it's it was. on you it's yeah. just like he could do vocals whenever he wants right. and you can come back and change them and we did that a lot and the other thing that was great about working here at HQ is part of that whole concept was staying everything stays set up so once we got our drum sound I mean it changes from song You're to song because you have 80 inputs plus, yeah right plus or minus 10% right same yeah. with the James's main rhythm guitar sound it's, there's a main sound and then plus or minus it changes 15-20% and there's some like, ornamental Overdub, sure. Kirk, same thing. He's got a solo sound, a rhythm yep. sound. Rob's bass sounds pretty consistent throughout. You know, little changes, but those setups were pretty much once we got them, they stayed 100% set up. So by the time we went to the second round of drums, we James was tracking with Lars with mm. the rhythm guitar sound that he wanted for the most part on the record. Rob had his bass sound the way he wanted it. And not only the way they wanted it, but we could start using big chunks of it if we wanted to and if it was mm. if the quality of it was good enough. And and I found that oftentimes it was. I mean, there's a there's a thing between James and, you know, Lars sometimes plays to James. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like it's a weird, <laughs> it's a unique thing for them. So we're able to, ca- I think, capture that and keep it a little bit more... Um, then they had been able to do that in the past because in the past maybe they liked the take but James was like I don't know that's my that, I didn't like that sound or whatever it was you know so we were able to move around wherever we wanted to do you know Lars got sick at one point maybe we were supposed to do drum tracks he wasn't feeling well, well you know what let's do the guitar overdubs for that other song mm-hmm. so you can go home and we it's not like three or four hours of waiting around for us to recall the sound it was pretty much there mm-hmm. so that was also the thing that was good about it for for them what did you find in terms of just management? How did you keep track? What was the spreadsheet? What was the whiteboard? How did you yeah, manage I mean, we that? Yeah, we had a whiteboard. <laughs> um, you know, I've got so, uh, a girl named Sarah Killian who's been working with me since Death mm-hmm. Magnetic, who's you know, 
you know, hyper organized yeah, and, script supervisor. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and, um, she's got it all there whenever I need to go back and like, what do we need to do on this? And what would be the most, you know, we sort of make some plans of what would be the most reasonable way to move forward. Obviously things change and I have to, you know, <laughs> redirect according to people's moods and yeah, sure. And what they want to do. But so, well, what did you, when did you find your day would start and end because it was kind of this open sandbox approach? I mean, I'm almost, always show up would certainly be here by 10 mm-hmm. it's usually a little bit earlier than that which is pretty early for me and normally yeah. it would be a little later than that. Um, <laughs> right. but the guys you it's rare that they stay around into the wee hours of the night which which was also nice so you know a lot of times i wasn't here much past 10 okay. that's probably not true but yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, yeah. it's li- li- i was pushed earlier in the day than normal yeah. i mean sometimes lars likes to come back late okay um but it's you know still kind of long days, but so a lot of the parts of the days maybe I didn't have band members, so I could have you know work on other things and mm-hmm. you know hone in on the specifics of stuff and almost did some pre mixing a little bit along the way too. Mm. When when it came down to just uh, the collaboration with the writing and everyone throwing their two cents in, how was it similar? How was it different this time around? Do you think for them? Um, I mean different. I mean, this record, I think, is is a little bit more. The the overall creative stuff is a little bit more specific. James and Lars, mm-hmm. the, the the two of them. Mm-hmm. Not that they shut people out. But yeah, it's sure. Just the way it kind of the way it sort of went. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think that's a little bit different than the last few records okay. or anything. But but I don't know. There was like I, like I said, there was sort of like a lack of marching orders or something, for lack of a better word. Although I think those words have been used several times in some mm-hmm. conversations I had with them, there was a sort of a freeness of it. Is it like it didn't have to be progressive or overcomplicated. It didn't have to be super simple, you know, ACGCified or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it could just be whatever it was and and whatever wherever we thought it needed to be. I think you know there was a little more. Uh, friendly collaborating on this there certainly was moments of not friendly collaborating <laughs> but but there was i think it was healthy i think maybe a little healthier as far as the the sort of bouncing ideas off of each other when it comes sort of everyone combined how do you um maintain just not having the fatigue of getting sick of songs how, how do how do some of the songs end up on the album when you guys have been working on them for so long right um well, I think anyone in this business has a strange knack to be able to listen to something over and over. Yeah, sure. I don't think that you can make it if you don't have, you know, if you go crazy after 10 listens, I think you yeah. get out early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know. I mean, this this stuff, for me, one of the things that was, lots of things were unique about this record, but one thing that stands out is, you know, obviously you work on stuff and things, you're, you're hoping things are constantly getting better. But this record did that and then in the you know the ninth inning to make a sports metaphor (laughs) um a lot of stuff got a lot better it was really late like stuff was kind of already like you thought that's how it went Mm -hmm. you were sort of getting comfortable with it and you always thought maybe it could have been better i mean i I feel that way any songs in particular that i mean there's a song called spit out the bone Mm -hmm. that um i mean there's several songs spit out the bone got a lot better really really like maybe that was the last one i mean i think okay. we had i'd already been mixing like most of the record <laughs> yeah, yeah and i redid the bass in the so the front third and back 
quarter, the song, the verse chorus area. We Rob would redo in the bass. You know, I'm telling you, it's one of the earlier ones we did, and. I just had, I think I had just mixed the song Hardwired or something, which mm-hmm. is also, they're similar in that they're both kind of fast and the bass sort of, you know, the guitar yeah. kind of thing. And the bass is trying to play in there with the guitar. But on the song Hardwired, we did something where he latched with the bass drum a little bit more than the guitar. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and this spit out the most like, similar fast thing. I think if you did this, it's going to make the song feel faster. And oh, it did. Yeah. It was awesome. So little things like that. And James also re sang the verses of that song. Literally, like, 10 of the 12 songs were mixed. Wow. And we went out and did vocals on two songs. Now that we're dead, mm-hmm. he made better, especially the back quarter of the song. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the verses of that song got a lot better. I was just looking at the track list here, Spit Out the Bones, is the last song on the second. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, get it on there. Right. Get it out the door. Uh, what are some of the staples for you in the studio? You said, obviously, the, the preamps, the Neve, was it? Yeah, I mean, most I, the majority of stuff is Neve preamps. Yeah. I mean, they've got a killer 24-channel. We call it a sidecar. It's really, yeah. I mean, at that point, 24-channel, I think that's, it's a console. It's a whole console, yeah. Yeah, so, but it's it's kind of compact for a Neve anyways. Yeah. Um, and it's off to the side, and that's killer. That's sort of the, the meat and potatoes of the guitar and drum sound. And it's got eight buses. It's really killer. Yep. And a lot of BAE 1073, you know, Neve mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and then they've always had another bank of eight, 10, yeah, 1081. So a lot of Neve mic pre's. Um, you know, lots of pull. There's got a handful of Pultex in yep. there. Um, couple tube compressors. A couple huh. of cool pieces that I, that I like to use on stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of EQ, really. It's yep. kind of their, the vibe. Well, is it? I mean, Metallica has a sound in your mind. What what makes up that sound? Is it a is it a combination of the layering, how they record? What like what is the sound to you? Um, a lot of the sound is the is the guys. Um, I had a very interesting mm-hmm. experience when I came down here the very first time. This is way back in two thousand eight. Yeah, and I remember sitting in that control room, and it was just James and Lars were on the floor, and they played something super simple thing with like a cymbal grab hit or something, typical like classic Metallica, you know, bop bop kind of a thing, mm-hmm. the articulate sort of stop stop. Yeah, thing. and it was just kind of like, ah, oh, fuck. It's like, and this was just whatever the rehearsal sound was. It just it sounded so much like you could if you just solo the drums and do that without even the guitar. I think you would probably know it was him. Yeah. It was yeah. one of those. So I think it comes off the floor a certain way. Um, but, you know, their, their sounds are, you know, James' guitar sound, you know, morphs every 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 project, I think. He's constantly looking for, I know he's, you know, I know guys that love, oh, James Heffield, you know, why mm. doesn't he get the sound from whatever? The master yeah, pubs yeah. are just, right, 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 right. you know, he listens to those records and he like cringes, you know. Yeah. It's funny to watch him because I, I like them all. I mean, yeah. I, the, any of these would be great, killer, whatever. You yeah. want something else, let's do that. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, he's forever chasing this thing that's constantly changing in his head, I think. Mm. So that's always fun working with him. And, he, you know, his... The way he plays, his, especially his right hand, has like yeah. a ton, of, ton to do with it. So I think that's those are kind of key things. Yeah. When it comes to his vocals, what, what, what mics were you using? What was this the the um, single chain like? Pretty, pretty straight. For Guinness, you know, comes out of him. Yeah. Um. Most it's probably ninety five percent of the record sung on an SM seven. Wow. Okay. Um. Through a, a ten seventy three, mm-hmm. and I usually got a you know eleven seventy six. I'm not killing it on the way in. Yeah. But definitely something to make it a little more aggressive and then i usually put something like a stay level 
it's, it sounds like it's double compressed and it's super crazy. <laughs> it's the stay levels more kind of just it's more Writing tone it. than yeah. it is compression. It probably does a little bit, yeah. but it's pretty limp, pretty minor. And then on the mix, you know, I usually will you know have that coming up as it is, which is you know it's it's somewhat compressed, but it's not hyper compressed by any stretch. And then I've got a hyper compressed kind of side you know parallel thing that I bring in. That sort of moves up and down depending on if I want it to be super aggressive or whatever. What was the combination of how many layering and different types of effects you guys are applying for that? For for vocals, vocals, yeah. Um, you, I don't know if there was one specific thing, but mm-hmm. definitely, you know, we did. I don't think we did any vocal doubles on Death Magnetic. That was kind of a thing. So this record was definitely we're going to be freer with vocal layering and definitely for harmonies james yep. wanted to get into that which i was into um we had a lot of fun with that mm-hmm. a couple of the songs are pretty dense i think uh, dream no more would be like one song where it's mm-hmm. i don't think there's a single vocal anywhere in the whole song so usually there's a vocal sometimes there's a double in a verse almost always there's a the double sort of comes in and sort of gets him going in the chorus or the pre-chorus whatever the arrangement is and if there's a harmony it's usually at least doubled sometimes tripled and sometimes there's more than one harmony. We did a lot of things with like a lower octave, mm-hmm. almost like a spoken ghost kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and those things usually get kind of distorted, and it's more of an effect than a another voice. How is it for him from going, you know, recording the recording his vocal coming back in? Do you, does he take the lead when it comes to him saying, "No, I can do that better"? Like, how much? What's the, what's that? conversation like between the two of you it's a uh, pretty 50 <laughs> 50 yeah. um i mean he's pretty patient i mean I, I like i'm a guy that likes a singer to do a lot of takes mm. and hey i'm also a guy who often uses mostly take one and take two yeah, sure, but, sure. but um i'll you know i'll keep wrenching on it until it's until it starts getting worse usually you know it's, mm-hmm. it's like you never know what's around the corner I, almost every song I think we did like a day of singing and then I comped it together and I put the best stuff together. Some of it we sort of wrote as he sang as well. So mm-hmm. those things will be even a different situation. But sort of comp the best of, he'd come in the next day or two days go by, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And then we'd li- sit down and listen to it and I'd have my lyric, you know, we have like a verbatim lyric. Yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Words are circled. Like, I don't like the way that word ends. I wish this, I wish you hung that longer. I wish you that was not so long. I wish you would stop it and make it punchy instead of, singy um yeah you know whatever it was you know a million things that it could have been yeah these words don't I, this yeah. doesn't this was better first verse awesome second verse not so awesome right change the words those kinds of things he was really open um that's not to say that he's not critical of his own stuff as well i mean he's also pretty critical yeah so, sure so it was it's a good i think it's a good match me and him together we can work hard without you know hopefully no tears <laughs> So for Lars, how did you approach the drums since you, you said you set it up and kind of walked away just because of how you guys are recording? So right. how did you cover your kit? Um, the kit, there's a lot of microphones on Lars's drum set. I mean, the, the mean potatoes of it, I've got two two microphones in each bass drum that mm-hmm. would go to separate tracks and mm-hmm. then a microphone outside of each bass drum, although I don't think... The outside mic I use on the slower stuff, yeah. so I probably never even use the outside mic. But you on had kick it. Two. I had it you if had I ever it, yeah. needed it. But when he goes to the second kick, it's almost always really fast. Yep. The outside mic is too Forget slow. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I've got a 57 and an 84 on top of the snare, as well as an 86 that sometimes I lean on. It's more on the shell. Okay. 57 underneath. Yep. Nothing special. Um, 57s and 80s, um, uh, 421s on the toms. Um, my main overheads was a pair of violet. I think it's called amethyst. I hadn't used these before. Mm. Something a buddy of mine suggested. Try this. I tried. It yeah, was awesome. Yeah, yeah. We loved it. Um, and then a pair of C12, C12s. The, the, the violets are kind of in your nor- usual sort of spot, more of a kit thing. Yep. And then we had probably, I don't know, about 12 feet up maybe. There's a pair of C12s. It's okay. sort of also a drum, but much a much bigger, slightly roomier kind how of does sound. The, how does the room sound? It's it's pretty good. It's I mean, it, Traditionally, it's that room has been more on the dead side. Yeah. So one of the things we did when we came here um, was figure out how to get a good drum room sound. And we did, we did it. it. It took us a while. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the benefits of the guys sort of coming in and out too, um, I think we had done some drums not like pre-pro drums, mm-hmm. not recording it. And I was still working on the drum room sound and they, they were gone for two weeks or something. And I had a drum tech, me and my engineer work here for uh, probably the two weeks that they were gone. I mean, wow. we were in here almost every day. We just started experimenting. We went out to the hardware store. We bought a bunch of four by eight sheets of plywood, plywood down on the floor. Cause he's kind of on a softer yep. area surrounded the whole kit. What does that sound like? So play it, you know, play Phil Rudby <laughs> drum tech, <laughs> not Lars, you mm-hmm. know, so Lars doesn't have to sit through the painstaking yeah, process sure. of this. Okay, now put the plywood down, play the same beat, record it, and sort of what is that doing? Yeah. All right, so we ended up with plywood on the floor, on the whole area where he was, as well as plywood kind of angled up the reflection behind or, him. Yeah. Sort of, he sort of plays with his back into a corner. So sort of like that I could show you later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the thing that was really made a big difference. We had some room mics. on. Far, it's a big room. You've been in there. Yep. On the far end of the room, where there's much more concrete, it's pretty far from the drum mm-hmm. set. And they normally have like big theatrical drapes, like almost cutting that room in half. So we pulled those, mm-hmm. tied those off so mm-hmm. that they weren't killing the room. And when we put those boards up, the microphones I had in the back of the room got all bright and, right, yeah. and clarified and were really nice. Mm-hmm. So that with a little bit of compression on it ended up being like the bulk of the room sound, Good, really good snare. So now just, we, uh, you know, plywood, Swiss console. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're trying to put the Ply, whole picture yeah. together. <laughs> you can't believe what you could do with plywood. Yeah. What did you find, you know, what is it like working with Lars when it comes to drums? Hyper-focused, very... And the, that's some of the feedback I even heard when I was talking with Robert a few months ago when you guys were kind of the tail end, which was like, he was saying, the, Greg is working us. He's telling us that, like, we're not tight enough. Maybe the tempo isn't right. Like right. really detailed kind of um, hyper-focus attention. What is it like working with a drummer like Lars? I mean, Lars is definitely one of the more hands-on. Uh, I don't know hands-on. I don't know if that's the right word. But <laughs> he is a drummer. He's he's focused. He's got his hands in all the pies that make the record go. So mm-hmm. more than most drummers, you know, he's songwriter. He's ranger does yeah. all you know he works on all aspects of the song even helps with with solos which is a whole nother story <laughs> but um you know i think one of the things that why me and lars work well together and i hope he would agree with this is that mm-hmm. we have a we have similar tastes so it's all you know maybe maybe 10 times out of 10,000 on this record 
did I was I like passionate about something that he hated? Yeah, yeah. And vice versa. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I love that fill, and I'd be like, I, if I have that fill one more time, yeah, I'm quitting. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't have. It's right. rare. It's very rare that it happens. So he he's a good. He's a really great person to collaborate with. Um, I mean, I guess you know, I try to be pushy to the point of um, constructive. You know, I mean. Sometimes you have to get to the point to where it's an argument. Yeah. And I understand there's value in that, but sometimes there's, you know, there's also a lot of unvaluable arguments. So I try to avoid yeah. that. But, you know, he's, um, it's great actually to have a, a guy playing the drums that's as in tune with the song. Just the overall song. Yeah. yeah the song right. as opposed to the drum part. So yeah, it's yeah. rare. It's very rare that he would, you know, sna- like a snare sound or something. I don't know, crack it. I'm like, you know, I think this song sounds better when the snare's a little deeper. Yep. For instance, maybe yeah, that's yeah. not a specific thing I said, but sure. it's that kind of thing. And he would listen to that and he'd be like, all right, I trust you. Yeah. Cool. So, and vice versa, he might have some insight into how the song is going to end up down the line where he thinks that there should be double bass in this little yeah. back quarter of this section or whatever it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though I thought maybe it sounded better without it. So, what was the kit that he was using throughout? What was the He used a, um, a sort of a, mishmash of tama uh-huh. stuff that he's had the the toms that he used on this record are the toms that we used i think maybe the, the toms we use on death i forget okay it was death magnetic or something else but we've used before he's always he's got the tama bell brass he's got about 15 of them back there so yeah we sort of picked the best five and we mostly used the best three is it the fill i was just listening to now that we're dead and beginning with the the, the tom fills is that uh, that one starts. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Those mm-hmm. fills. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How many toms are we listening to? In that? is it just typical kind just, of setup there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just it? two okay. two racks, two floors. It's not. It's not as that song sounds much more um, intense than yeah. than it actually plays. It's okay. not that hard. I I can't do it. But yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not like um some crazy. It's it's not as intense difficult as it sounds okay because it, it sounds like it's it's a straight more, ahead like yeah, there's a snare straight. going and then there's yeah. these, dr- these <laughs> fills. yeah yeah, yeah. i'm just <laughs> like wait yeah and he's got his feet are always going yes. through it yeah 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 so it's, i'm not i mean i'm not a drummer but like i'm just like how the fuck is this possible right no it's possible he could yeah. do it. i know someone someone else was asking me about that i don't recall who and it was thinking how is that a, is that an overdub yeah, yeah. and i was kind of like what do you is it an overdub no yeah and then they started telling me like why they thought that and i guess you know i don't even know if i ever listened to it like that because uh-huh. i'd never heard it without watching him do it first yeah so it was always sort of like oh okay I, I, I just like so sometimes if you get into you know online and just the deep dark holes of the web and what people how they comment about stuff right and yeah what, what did and the reason why I bring this up is I just think that like people love to, to put their opinion in and like how drummers or how musicians play mm-hmm. for you like what how much not comping but how much straightening out because I know drums can very much be to a grid right well and, this is know. not to a grid yeah. and you, I think you can tell when you listen to it but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um you know, we do, you know, I'm not, you know, there's no secret. We do lots of drum editing. Yeah. You know, we didn't do a million takes or anything. It's not that kind of record. Mm-hmm. I think, I think maybe the most we did is maybe, maybe one song had 12 takes, but I think most okay. of the time it was between six and eight, um, f- like full takes. Maybe some songs we did like the first half, a couple extra to the second half, a couple extra times. If it was, if it was a very fast song, yeah, yeah. it was running out of a little steam. Any, I mean, any clicks, like any tempo mapping, like, um, not no tempo. I mean, there a couple songs we would always 
bring him back down down into the click to the click. Mm-hmm. Everything I think he always had a click to start. Okay, like, just to get com- yeah, to just start like the, yeah, right. Yeah. Shuts just off in, after yeah. four bars or yep. something. I'm trying, what was the song that we there's there's at least a couple where we were very conscious of where the click was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we would like turn the click on. Might have been like God, I don't know. I can't remember <laughs> right now. I think it was uh, maybe Man Unkind was one of those songs. We're sort mm-hmm. of like you know, the chorus had hit click, and he if he was too far away, we'd have to stop. Yeah, like, yeah which yeah. didn't happen that often. Yeah. but just he tended to maybe take off there or something. So just something to bring him back, and then turn it off, and he goes and goes back to his groove, and then comes back, and it's a little more rigid. But we would never edit to the click. Certainly, there's no quantizing. Or anything yeah, like that. It's, it's not the vibe. Yeah, and if I ever did it, I think I mean I don't usually like the sound of that, anyways. But if I ever did that, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. he would like. I mean, he wouldn't know what I had done. Right. He would just know that I did something horrible. Yeah, yeah. This is not working. Please that stop. Sound yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely not that kind of thing. But, you know, yes, there's editing. And, and maybe some people would even think that it's a lot of editing. But yeah. it's, it's more about, um, you know, getting the feel right. So it's not unlike comping a vocal to me. It's yeah. like, I mean, if you're doing a vocal and the whole line is killer, yeah. then you use the whole line. If these two words are great from that take and this word is great from that take and these other three yeah, words are better from another take, you do it and if you look at it, it looks a little I bit... I mean, it's nothing new. Yeah, I mean, right. People have been doing this for a while for, now. Since, yeah. yeah, I mean, the Beatles were doing this. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, you never like it if it sounds like you did that. You only yeah. like it if it sounds fucking awesome and if yep. it sounds like some dude just sang the song like no one ever sang it before. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that kind of thing is. So I try to not to think too much about it. No, it's perfect. And what was kind of the signal chain for Lars's drums uh, kit? Um, you know, all almost all Neve mic pre's. I think the rooms were APIs. There's got a couple API mm-hmm. mic pre's in there. Um, lots of EQ. You know, the kick. Everything's got Neve EQ on it. Probably. I think the 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 kicks also have some GML parametric okay. EQ to kind of carve into those. Um, the snares. Oh, I've always got pull text on the snares. Um, but, but not all, nothing. I don't think anything compressed on the way in for the drums. Okay, I try to tr- keep that stuff pretty, pretty free. And then even when we're tracking, I'm listening to sort of a parallel drum crush kind of thing. Yep. Nothing, you know, nothing unique about right, that. Yeah, but yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And I've got this thing, this Lucas limiting amplifier. I've got a bunch of them, mm-hmm. sort of like a tube. I guess you could say maybe it's a little bit like an old 176, but mm-hmm. it's different. It's really punchy and warm. It's kind of pillowy warm. It's mm-hmm. really nice, but super punchy. It's soft, but punchy. <laughs> um, soft at the top end sort of gets nice. I but get it's it. it's super pop. pop. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like a mono kick snare with a little bass guitar thing that I'd go to that and hit that pretty hard. And that's where a lot of the pop is. Any... Trigger, not triggering, but like any um, gosh, sampling or yeah, there's some sample um, de- depending on what for. Yeah. In the mixing, um, I definitely used some samples throughout, but you know, really supplemental. Like you could, if you muted the samples while the mix was playing, you would be like, oh, the drum sound yeah, is yeah. not quite as good. But it's not like the song disintegrated. If you muted the Accident, mics yeah. Yeah. and right. while the, and only heard the samples, yeah, yeah. you would think I muted the drums. Like, what is, is it a room mic open? What's going on? The, ca- the kind of... Casio drum. The yeah, it's just, you wouldn't you wouldn't you it wouldn't sound like the song. So yeah, there's yeah. there's some samples in the mixes, but not a lot. Okay, and even I think on a couple songs, some of the samples that are playing are samples from the album. 
it's kind of a complicated story, but mm-hmm. the song Now That We're Dead is actually the majority of that, what's on the album was a pre-production recording before mm. we actually tracked the song. And we love this pre-production version of it. Yeah. Lars had called it the magic take from the, from pre-pro he was referring to it. And I remember thinking, I better keep my eyes on that take. So we tracked the song and I thought we beat it and we cut together our master and we did the guitar overdubs. And six months later, after the songs, Moses James had already sung it. Even. Yeah. Lars came to me one day and was like, man, I was on my run. He likes, he's an exercise guy. He's like, I'm on my run. And the the magic take of, of the song was called Tin Shot at the time. It comes up and he goes, I, I know that sonically it's not as good as the thing we're working on, man, but there's just a vibe. You should listen to it. So we sat in that control room and I found it. I put it up. I listened to it. And I'm like, we A-beat it, the two versions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, dude, I can't, I cannot disagree with you. I don't know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Sonically, it's kind of a because it was a pre, you know, it was pre pro, or kind yeah, of not yeah, really yeah. paying a ton of attention. Right. Um, so on that song, for instance, one of the problems with the, the snare had kind of, kind of lost some of its spunk. Okay. So we ended up using a snare sample from the version of wow. the song we tracked. Got it. Okay. And. Brought it in. Sort of brought that in to just help the snare crack a little bit more. So that's probably the, the, that song probably has the most samples in it, just because of that. Just sort of had to mm. make it sound a little bit more like the rest of the record. Nice. Mm. So if we're getting into guitar world for James and Kirk, how do you separate the two? Are there when you are doing? Is it solo passes of both, or how do you even handle the guitars? Um, when we're doing overdubs, it's yeah. um, one guy at a time for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, James does the majority of the rhythm parts, okay. even on the both left and the right side. Yeah, yeah, Most, yeah. Om- not, not almost everything. Every song's got at least a left, a right, and they call it a thickener, sort of a triple that uh-huh. peaks up in the center. Yeah, that moves a lot depending yeah. on the part of the song. Kicks up for accents. Sometimes it's four guitars going. A lot, of, a lot of guitars. Um, but um, yeah, it's two very separate things. James sort of does the bulk of, of the rhythms, and then Kirk comes in and does obviously solos, mm-hmm. and then does depending on the song, do some rhythm parts, maybe some I don't know, I call them ornaments, more mm-hmm. like you know yep. additional parts, yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. What, what did you find in terms of when you are looking at solos? How do how do you even how does uh, Kurt like to even approach them? I mean, it's different. I suppose it's different every album. This this record we we. We specifically wanted to come in sort of fresh. I mean, Kirk, I, you know, this is this is one of those topics that sort of a lot of people have different ideas on. Mm-hmm. So, um, from my experience with Kirk, Kirk's a, an endless improviser, and he is couldn't improv. It's rare Forever, he'll do yeah. a, a, you know. I mean, he even take a hundred for mm-hmm. instance, like still has a new thing in it that's cool. You know, it's like never. It's sort of never ending. Mm-hmm. But when he sits there and he gets super specific about a part, this is not always. This, this is maybe eighty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. If he comes up with a super specific part and then he starts playing the same thing all the time, but he hasn't really um, experimented or not much with it. It's just like stuff coming from rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he'll get maybe stuck in a spot that's it's decent, but it's not stellar, and then it's hard for him to hear anything else. So. This record, we sort of decided to try to keep more, most of the solos more fresh and take advantage of the never-ending improvising. He'd come in and we'd do a bunch of takes and he'd be like, do whatever, you know, 
do it at warm-up. Mm-hmm. Okay, now do one with a wall. Okay, now try that other guitar. And what you know when you keep going down low here, do the complete a start, start up high, mm-hmm. end low, or whatever it is. And you just do that. And then I'd have, let's say I'd have 30 or 40 things. I'd sit down and start listening. I'd pick out, regardless of the order of the events, that was rad, that was rad. And Lars would help me with this. So this mm. is where sort of that Lars thing kind of comes yeah, in. Yeah. Where he's keys. He's very good, very good at this. Um, and we would sit down and pick out the best parts. We have our little comp sheets and we <laughs> sort of, it almost starts to become a puzzle. Like we love this. That's a great opener and that's a great closer. Mm-hmm. That's a great little theme for the middle. Very melodic, cool. This part's killer, but it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It can't go after that. Could it work over here? Mm. So I would maybe fly it over just as a test. And we'd sort of cobble something together and bring in this. Mm. While we're doing this, you know, Kirk is, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the parking lot sunning or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's out taking a break, chilling out. Yeah, yeah. Not, he's not in the every right. second with us. Then he comes in and we'll play him this sort of composition yeah. that it's got lots of ragged ends, but you, you get the vibe. And he'll be like, I like that. I don't really like that so much there. And I like that part. Go, okay, well, let's play. Let's let's get this, the first eight bars with that opener. That's yeah. the vibe. Doesn't that be exactly like that? And come in and kind of do it. And we'd sort of build the solos like that. It was a great way to work. I thought, I think the solos came out great. Yeah. Um, they're this, the... The freshness and the, the discovery of it, mm. you know, maybe it's, some of it isn't the most perfect, technically perfect playing, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's never really what yeah, I'm right. attracted to in the first place. Right. Anyways, it's a feel or it's, you know, excitement or whatever it is, crazy sounds, you know, you know, sometimes you don't even know what he's doing. Um, he has a great tone. Yeah. He's a fantastic tone. Like what, what in your mind, when he... When he has a sound in his mind, where does he usually go? Is it the guitar? Is it the amp head? The combination? Like where? It, a lot has to do with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he does use. He likes. A, we use a wah a fair yep. amount, um, which I know sometimes he gets criticized for. <laughs> but I mean, to me, it's like you know, we also use distortion on every solo. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I don't know, no one's complaining about that. So right. I, yeah, it's yeah. just noise. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, I don't mind. A, I like the wah. I mean, yeah. some of Kirk Hammett's most famous to me, my yeah. favorite solos from, if you want to call it the earlier stuff. Yeah. Have want on it. Yeah. I mean, isn't that isn't that what Kirk Hammett sounds like? Yeah. <laughs> to me, it right, is. Right, I mean, right, Jimi right, Hendrix yeah, yeah. does it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, a lot of that has you know that inspires his playing as well. Um, part of it's his fingers. You yeah. Know, that's sort of the way. Like, I mean, I could pick up his guitar and play the same eight notes, and it sounds nothing like it did when he did it. You know, so that's a lot to do with it. But he's kind of a guitar nut as well. So he's got like his heavy metal. Um, go-to guitars yeah, you know right. his, his soloing guitars yeah um but then he's got some really great we used he's got this you know the greeny les paul it's, <laughs> i don't know the whole story on it but uh, you can look it up um I, it used to be belong to like someone from pink floyd and someone from Fleetwood yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? there's some magic on it yeah and that guitar i mean that guitar sounds killer mm. that's inspiring to him he'd play that he's got a couple guitars it goes to that's sort of just the guitar itself sort of inspires how me. many did you how many road cases of guitars did you guys have here oh man there's so i mean in this building i don't i kind of i've never been able to count all the guitars yeah. the control room sort of had i think kirk probably had five go-to guitars i bet 90 percent of the solos are on most of those, one yeah. of three of okay. those guitars yeah. yeah i mean that's the thing here it's just like there's so much so stuff. much stuff yeah, yeah i mean james the same thing his guitars are kind of you know i mean he's got I mean, every week there's a new guitar coming in, <laughs> but we use, you know, 
he's got this flying V he's had since he was 16 or whatever yeah. it is that may, makes a few appearances. That that works good on fast stuff. He has this thing called the Eat Fuck, which is like, I think his first ESP Explorer. Uh-huh. It's like a Gibson yeah. Explorer copy. Yeah. That thing sounds amazing. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I've played, it plays, I've, I've played it. It's fun to play. It's yeah. a great guitar. Yeah. That's on almost every song. Okay. And then he's one of his, um, snake, I think called the Snake Bite, right? He's mm-hmm. got one of these. He had two snake bites that sort of sounded exceptional compared to others that we used. And that's pretty, you know, those four or five guitars. And most of that stuff, you would have them in the control room with you? They're, yeah, they're hanging on the walls. You know, but I mean, like, when they're tracking, they're sitting in the control room listening back? or When when we're doing drums, everyone's out on the floor with Lars. Right. Um, through those amps, though. Okay. Um, and then when it's time to do overdubs, James or Kirk or Rob would be in the control room with me. Yeah. Just kind of getting on a side tangent here. What is your monitoring setup like? What what do you guys use for your, your near fields and what do you use for the large? Um, the near most of the near field stuff I do is on Proact mm-hmm. Studio One Hundreds. Um, I've used those a long time yeah. now. I like them a lot. They they like them. Yeah. I also have a pair of NS Tens up, but that's more for me, especially like if I'm mixing or something. When you put your lab coat on, and- right? And just when you want to you know <laughs> listen to something else, and then yeah. there's a pair of um. ATC, I think 150s. I think the 150s, yeah, big. There's some barefoots also? No, no, no barefoots. barefoots? No, okay. No, no, no. And that, those are the big ones. Those okay. are really loud and big. And they sound killer. Okay. They get quite loud. Well, when, when, do you, when do you go to the bigs? Um, when we're doing bass overdubs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I like to go. James doesn't really like the bigs that much because yeah. he gets fatigued too easy. So yeah. he's pretty good with the pro axe. Kirk also okay. with the products, but loud. Kirk yeah. likes it pretty loud. Yeah. Um, Lars likes to listen to stuff back on headphones a lot of the times. So okay. He's used to that. Yeah. Everyone has their flavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can you say just about I mean, even James' rhythm guitars? Is is there something about how he hears that sound or how they play that really defines? Yeah, I mean, you know, getting the guitar sound on this, I, we probably spent more time getting the rhythm guitar sound than we did the drum sound on this record. I think that's a first for me. <laughs> um, he's very, he, I mean, he he always wants to find this thing that he's got in his, in his head, or maybe, I don't know if it's in his head, but yeah. it, it was a collaborative thing with me and him. Um, he wants something. I think it needs to be something. They're not that far apart, and we figure out how to, get them to be together but you know just testing out just so many different Mm -hmm. amps and it's funny we end up with the um this head that he's had forever this mesa Mm -hmm. boogie mark 2c plus Uh he's had since i don't know i don't know if he's had it since the lightning tour i know it's on Uh, i know that he's you've been using it since the master of puppets record so it's on almost all the records yeah um and that thing just He's got three of them, but one in particular just sounds sounds great. Yeah. And then he always wants to augment it with something. So it's mostly three. There's three amps. That's sort of the main one. And then this the other amp was a diesel amp that mm. he's been using in his rack live for a long time. And then um, this Wizard, uh, I forget the model, but it's like a hundred watt. It's sort of Marshally, like a classic, a little bit of a more of a rock and roll amp that we get some good gain out of, and then put a. I think we use a Klon mm. distortion a lot of the time, overdrive pedal. So we switched pedals around a little bit. But that sort of filled in a certain thing in the sound that he liked. But his thing is, mm. he's he talks a lot about the way it feels, mm-hmm. um, which is, from an engineering standpoint, is a difficult thing to crack the code on because you, you make an adjustment and you, you can't go back. You don't know, if, and you don't know, yeah. does that feel better? You, know, yeah, you can yeah, only yeah. ask him because you, you, I don't know what that means. Yeah. 
to him. You know, I don't, I know that I, I like it better when I add more of this 2K or whatever the hell. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, it sounds mushy. No, it feels mushy. Sorry, not sounds. Like feels. Like he's more, yeah. he's listening too. Obviously makes comments about mm-hmm. sound. But a lot of it had to do like, it had to sound a certain way and it had to feel a certain way. You had to, you know, give him feedback for being a player. So That's awesome. What did you find for, um, skipping, jumping ahead here now for, for Robert? I mean, it's, when you're talking about playback of listening to these tracks, I find that the translation of where the bass sits in these tracks mm-hmm. totally depends on how you listen. Like what's what, whether it's on headphones or speakers or whatever. Right. How, how did you guys approach the bass? Um, we had a lot of fun with the bass sound. I mean, Rob, you know, getting a bass to cut through a Metallica mix is yeah. a challenge for yeah. sure. Lars, I mean, I, it's not really a joke, but yeah, yeah. Um, kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure every mix that I did on this record, at least once, either James or Lars or both of them said, "Is, is the bass instrument a little bit loud?" Like, no, like it's that's it's hilarious. always it's always like, how can I get this thing so I can? Yeah. I mean, there's a certain amount of low end that I I, I want to at least have, right? And then there's a certain amount of like, not just the not just the the low end presence of the bass but like i want to be able to hear some of the riffage why do you think that is for them i don't don't know i mean it it is yeah i don't know why but it definitely is a thing i mean it's not that they i mean they and they like playing with rob they love rob rob's awesome he's a great bass player as well as most all of their bass players have been great i don't know why that it's i don't know what it is i love the conversations that people have that have had both both in person online of like right the, not besides mixes, besides the technical aspect that the minutia that people can get into, but how present or non-present certain aspects of the album can be. Right. But, some, but like I said, I, I've listened to this in a studio setup and on my car. Yeah. And it, it and it totally depends on that system that you have. Right. Because of how how this how many of their albums have been mastered and engineered and right. Just, but like I guess really like the question is like what. Like what? What was your own personal kind of goal when it came to just the mix and where Rob was going to fit in with it? Well, Rob was going to fit in. I mean, when we recorded the bass, we this the bass sound on this record has a little bit more growly, overdriven SVT kind of a sound mm-hmm. to it than, than most of their definitely more than Death Magnetic, but yeah. um, even earlier stuff. So there, that was something that I wanted. You know, I did. Um, I did this that Black Sabbath thirteen record a mm. handful of years back, and I remember Rob. And the bass is pretty loud on that. Yeah, record. yeah, yeah. I didn't mix that record; I recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Rob had said, you know, I really love the the, the the growly thing. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. I'm glad you like that because that's I I own that amp that does that. <laughs> what was it? So it's, it's, I've got a, a like a 1969 SVT matching head and cabinet okay. that just. It does. It does that. Yeah, it does. It just do that does that. Either. I mean, it only does that. Like, right. If you want it to be clean, it almost not, it's yeah. not even useful. Um, and you use it in conjunction with other stuff, you know. So there's two SVTs. One's more a burly, typical, um, or big bass sound, and that sort of has that edgy thing that you can kind of, when you need it, you can almost just push it up to make the bass cut through. So that was part of the sound. Yeah. As it was recorded. Yeah. And then. Trying to get that in there, you know, James likes his guitars to be up and and present and really loud. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, then there's the vocal that fights with that. And then yeah. there's the snare drum that fights with that. And then the look, James likes some low end on the guitars. So then you get there's that. the bass. Or frequencies are left. 
Right. It's like what, 50, 50 and below. 50 and below. Is, Rob <laughs> yeah. owns 50 and below. Yeah, 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 There's yeah. a little kick drum there too, yeah. but not much. But um, yeah, so it's it's trying to find, and that's where you get that thing. If it's, yeah. if it's most of the energy is happening below, you know, 70 hertz, 80 right. hertz, depending on where you're listening to it, yeah. really depends on how much bass you're going to hear. But yeah. that's just the way it is. What did you find was kind of the signal path for, for Rob? I mean, how many different variations of bass guitars was he using? Um, the the majority the two bases pretty much made up the, the whole, whole thing. Yeah. yeah, and and one of them is an ESP, and the other one is one of his Warwicks. Yeah, um, his bases are kind of strange, and and um, for me, they're so different than like a like a classic, you know, P bass or something that I would use on a what's different rock record. Really, they're really they got preamps built in them. They're very loud. So like my SVT that I was mm-hmm. talking about a minute ago. If he plugged his bass right into the front end of that amp, it would it would sound horrible. Rocket fuel. It's yeah. way because that amp is built for you know it sounds best with it, like an SVT, like yeah. a P bass or something passive, passive pickup yeah, exactly. coming into right. it. Right. Yeah. So I had to figure out how to make Rob's bass sound good, which we did figure it out. All of that mostly has to do with level, and we also found like he he's got a sound. He comes with a sound too. This yeah. was augmenting that sound, and a lot of his sound. I, I hate to do this, but. I just had to because it was I, I, it was clear to me it was best <laughs> is with Rob we actually used his wireless pack that he uses live which I normally I'm wow. I'm, a, I'm a because of how he plays when he's I don't know if it's because of how he plays or if it has to do with the level of his bases if you plug a wire into him into an amp it's like the kind of ties him down it's there's something about the the pack that oh. handles that level that sort of brings it into the real world or something okay. or stuff. And whenever we, whenever I try to change it, and we worked on it a lot, mm-hmm. um, it was never as good. The first thing I started with was, let's do your sound. Okay, there's right. your sound. Great. Record it. Now let's beat it. Yeah. And every time I tried to take that wireless pack out, I spent the next hour oh. trying to get back to that. And finally I was like, oh, I think we're just going to use the wireless so pack. So there's no okay. direct then at all? There is a direct. Okay. We plug... Um, so kind of a, <laughs> yeah, check, tell me, this, tell check me. this out. So <laughs> a wire from his base uh-huh. into a DI. Right. And I, I like the Little Labs PCP oh, yeah. distro box as a DI builder. Yeah. That's my sort of flat DI. I like mm-hmm. that a lot. Um, and then on one of the other, that's a little three-way splitter, that mm-hmm. thing, right? On one of the splits, mm. we plug his pack into The wireless, it. yeah. So the wireless then goes to his rack. Oh, that's on his strap then? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wire then that no no the DI is separate so he's just DI plugged into a wire. Oh okay. Yeah. So wire into the DI that's over by the amps. Yeah yeah yeah. In, in the control room. Yeah, yeah. And then the wireless pack and the wireless pack goes to the to, rack right, and the sure. rack goes to the heads. Right. So in there he's got a, a, an SVT, mm-hmm. a, a sort of a standard not standard but a classic SVT not the distorted one that I was telling you about. And then he's got a, a gas cooker DI. You mm-hmm. know those things. Mm-hmm. That thing's killer too. So that's a second DI that I use. That's why did you go? Why did you put a second one in there? Um, he always has a gas cooker in his rig. I don't know what that gas cooker does. It's kind of com- it's it doesn't sound like a clean DI to me. Yeah. It's it's got sounds kind of compressed yeah. and a little hyped or something. And in okay. a good way, it sounds awesome. Yeah, but I, I don't feel. I don't feel it does the same exact thing as the PCP DI, okay. so I do use both, and they work good together. Yeah, and then his SVT, and then my SVT, and mic'd up various different ways. So that's sort of the basic, hmm. and the bass is something that I do compress on the way in. What were you going through? Um, the aggressive SVT just got an eleven seventy six across it, and the the PCP DI goes straight. The gas cooker I hmm. go through a tube tech. 
Okay. And the other SVT also went through a tube tech, the mics. So by the time Rob gets into the studio to do his parts, what does he have to work with? Um, when he would do his bass parts, he'd have a, the drum track and at least a left and right main rhythm guitar. Okay. Yeah, sometimes a little bit more. On this yeah. particular record, not always. Yeah. Most of the times Rob did his overdub before Kirk, but not mm. always. Not always, most of the time. So by then, you, you'd, you'd obviously hear where it sits with that current kind of... Yeah, I mean, the bass sound for the record is, and this was intentional, yeah. is, you know, it is partially defined with what's left yeah. by, by the guitar sounds. Yeah. yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that is... It's Metallica. It is Metallica. It's guitar-based stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So wrapping up, you know, the production aspect, at what point, because it was kind of a rolling production, at what point did you, or how did you mix on it? Like, because you're saying it was kind of a start-stop based on what you're doing. Like, how did that influence just your mix process? And like, how did you switch your board over then to mix? Or how did you switch? Well, well, I sort of, you know, I don't want to say I mixed as I went. Yeah. But I sort of cracked the code on mixing mm-hmm. as I went. That's a better way to That's put it. That's a good title for a book. <laughs> cracked the code. <laughs> all right. Um, so I kind of knew, and all the mixing happened at the end. Yeah. When I said we started and stopped, right. only to the end of the recording. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. once it was time to mix, let's mix the record. And for the most part, the record was done. But not totally. Like I said, you know, Spit Out the Bone, where you did a bass part. Last minute, yeah. And we did vocals and yeah. on several songs. After I had mixed most of them or even parts of the one I was mm-hmm. overdubbing too. Um, so um, I just had a pretty good idea of how I wanted to spread out for the mix. Um, a lot of stuff already was kind of coming up the way I wanted it to come up. Mm-hmm. And I had already, because I've been working on the record in that control room for a long time, I sort of knew like you knew exactly these, what was these there. EQs work really yeah. good on this song with those kick and snare and the overheads are better on this song with some mid-range and mm-hmm. etc so that sort of was almost worked on and then the really the thing that i had a the stuff that i really had to discover in the mix was really figuring out where the ambience would sit and figuring out the effects on the vocals mm. um that wasn't something we always had some verb and delay and whatever on vocals but the overall you know, how the vocals meshed in there they were always a little not in in the rough mixes mm-hmm. they sound a little bit separate compared to how the album turned out well, how did you find you know getting the time that you needed when the band wasn't there to do some work and kind of have a first stab at it or like how did you even control kind of that mixing um you know again the part of the, the one of the benefits of doing it here was sort of the you know cracking the code as well, yeah, right, yeah. On the <laughs> yeah, mix, yeah as well as um you know the guys are really generous when it comes to to letting you do your thing, and they're also so, coming and going other shows that they're doing throughout. Yeah, these yeah, years, yeah. So. I mean, some some of the I mean, yeah. part of the time when I was mixing, they were out of town, which mm-hmm. which you know, for some aspects of the mix is a great thing, and yeah. other aspects it's not because obviously I'm not moving on or not. I'm not really done with anything until they here, they're yeah. into it right. as well as I'm into it. So sometimes it was okay that they were gone, and I was able to spend that time you know, honing in on something and other times maybe it was made the process last a little longer than it needed to. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, I always had the time I needed. That yeah. was, you know, one of the benefits of being, doing it here and, you know, they're the yeah. label and. Right. How, how, like what are some of those staples when it comes of mixing in the box or out of the box with this kind of hybrid system that you had? Right. What, what, what are some of the things 
that you would kind of adhere to tracks bake in or commit? Um, you know, any, a lot of the, you know, there's not a lot of effects on the record, right. I guess, but you know, some of the effects, look at some of the songs that have more crazy vocal things, mm-hmm. like the Dream No More, for instance. Mm-hmm. Those those vocal sounds and uh, Am I Savage has kind of some processed vocals. That stuff I worked on, you know, most of that stuff's going on in the box, um, whether it's distortions and flanging and, you know, whatever, bending. Yeah. Um, and then when I, usually when I like, once I I like this, uh-huh. I'd go ahead and commit to it. Yeah. And I'd bounce through the effects and th- th- that's what it is. Yeah, and then yeah, it yeah. comes up on the console like that from then on out. Yeah. yeah. For you, what do you appreciate, like when it comes to production versus mixing, what do you tend to... Uh, you know, it's a it's kind of a blurry line for me. Um, even the records that I've been just a mixer on, I always feel like I, you know, there's no um, there's no off limits uh-huh. um, idea. You know, I don't, if I come up with a cool idea, I'm not uh, uh, I'm not shy to express it because I'm not the producer. I mean, obviously, I don't want to step on anyone's toes either. Yeah, but, sure. but that's that's never the case. You wouldn't right. have the job if that was the case. I yeah. think so. Um, I don't, you know, I do whatever I do, and if I've got a cool idea and I want to present it to the band, and in and, and, and cases where I'm just the mixer, the producer, um, I do it, and that's no different than what I what I would do here. You know what I mean? It's sort of you just you come in later, but you still do you know you do your thing. So I don't know that that line's really definable. <laughs> well, what was your approach for mastering? Well, for mastering, uh, we we did a little uh we sent it out to a couple of guys and then we did a little blind test oh and nice what we thought sounded best and dave collins ended up being one of, although there were several that were really good yeah um that's the one we liked the most what what do you find that helps in terms of getting some options of of going out to several people like that um that's a luxury that I don't think necessarily a lot of people. Not have a lot either. of people have. I like yeah. you know when you can do that, it's good because you know maybe at the very least it gives you um, an added amount of confidence in okay. moving forward swiftly because yeah. you know it's the <laughs> yeah, best yeah, yeah. one. Right. So um, yeah. not that confidence is a problem, but yeah. it's always nice to it's always nice to know for sure that you've you know you've t- you've turned over all the stones. Yeah. The difference between you know mastering guy A and mastering guy B to the end you know to the fans mm-hmm. you know probably is not, probably not measurable but um mm-hmm. but that's a weird you know right way, when is it measurable it takes me two days to mix a song i don't even you know at the end of the first day I, that mix probably would might have been fine too i don't know but um but i think the mix after the second day was a little bit better yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit better that's what i want to do right i've got the time and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's a budget and why wouldn't you do it i mean it's what we do right what were some of the, what's the deliverables that you're giving these guys? Like what, what bit rate are you? I mean, we read 96, 24, mm-hmm. um, 96, 24 is what I mixed. We record to 96, yeah. 24 and I mix back into the box mm-hmm. at 96, 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I send to the mastering guy. Yeah. And, and then they, once we get that mastered, the high res mastered, yeah. then we'll start doing the, sample rate conversions and yep. what have you. I mean, that's the thing I love about Metallica is that these guys, their fans love the vinyl. They love the CD. Right. I mean, they're, I think just this upcoming tour, they're coming back to the States, but they're most of the time outside of the U.S. Right. Where people still love to buy albums. Right. 
Yeah. It's not a digital, I mean, digital obviously is here and it's not going anywhere, but what was your kind of like, how many, are there different flavors of this album that are, that been put out there? For the different formats, or Dif- you mean different versions? Yeah, of the album? not really. No. no, I mean I know there was a little bit of I think someone had brought to my attention some crazy <laughs> web thing that was going on, or something about the the differences between all the versions and the, you know, uh-huh. the, re- the reality. The reality right. is, is there's one master. It was the ninety six twenty four version of this, of the record was mastered yeah. by Dave via me and James right. Lars's comments. Yeah, and then once we had that, we took that and we. Sample rate converted it to the various sample rates, and you know whether it was, you know, CD mm-hmm. or whether it was for the the iTunes version, which you know mastered for iTunes. Hey, what does that mean then, really, for it's, you guys? You know, Nothing we, for for us. It doesn't really mean much because we're not we're, we're yeah we know what we want it to sound like. Right. So you know, mastered for iTunes, really, what it means these days for me, I and mean, mm-hmm. perhaps there's some producers out there that do yeah. some mixers that do it differently, but um, it's really for master for iTunes, it's. Have mo- mostly has to do with high res, yeah. but high res really only twenty four bits, so it could be yeah. forty four one twenty four, yeah. which I think is what we delivered to them, right? Because otherwise they do the sample rate conversion, and who knows what happens then. Yeah. But when you do that, especially the MFIT thing specifically mm-hmm. has some level mm-hmm. um, requirements, mm-hmm. which require you to bring your peaks down. Yeah. So it's the peaks come down, but the the yeah. whole thing the, comes down. It's not a not yeah. less compressed. Yeah. Um, but when you sample rate convert yeah. that minus three or two, I forget what it mm-hmm. was. I think it was we ended up minus two. You have to you have to make sure that the inner sample peaks don't go over something, right? All this we're getting really deep right? into this now. Go ahead. So that stuff ends up looking a little bit more like it might be as a less compressed mix or yeah. something because of the sample rate conversion process. But the only reason why I bring this up is I just feel like because of the last few albums, people love to pull apart how their albums are engineered. Right, and there's right. such a there's it's I think it's from a place of love. Yeah, absolutely. The fans yeah, yeah. Really fucking love this band. Right, but it comes. It also gets it, it detracts from what you're talking about, which is the art of what the band's trying to do here. Which yeah, is, which is capture a song and yeah. Give it to I mean, fans. when you put the he- you know when you put the he- the headphones on and listen to this record, yeah. Regardless of what version of it right. you're listening to, I think it sounds killer. So yeah. yeah, the CD sounds a little bit different than the higher. Maybe it does. I don't right. know. The vinyl right, right. obviously sounds different, depending on, especially yeah. depending on what, what you're turning through. through. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many yeah. variables. I guess lastly, you know, they're now transitioning. Here we are in the new year, and they're going to transition into their live shows, which is what brought you up to HQ now, and, that, and right. that's uh, because they're going to take these songs on the road. So. How do you replicate what happened in the studio for the live show? Does it matter? Well, I mean, all these songs were tracked live as a band. I mean, I don't, most of the lyrics were written later, yeah. but, but they were all basically tracked when you know as a band. So it's I don't think it's that far of a stretch. I think it's more about just um, getting it in their in their blood because you know most of their stuff they've been playing for so long they can do it blindfolded. Right. They, they always rehearse, but it's more about a physical. Getting their endurance memory, up, yeah, yeah endurance yeah. up more than like, how does Mr. Puppets go? I don't think yeah. that happens anymore. But these songs, I think they do sometimes, you know, fuck, what was that? How, how, how did I fret mm-hmm. that? You know, I mean, that's typical stuff. Yeah. And then it's also like splitting up a parts, like, hey, do you want to take the high part or take the low part? You know, especially on the harmony solos and stuff, which is not really, I think at some point probably we talked about it, but maybe now it needs to change and it can't change, whatever. So, and you know, getting the background vocals going because, that's never happened. These background vocals. What are they doing for the live show? Do you think? Where comes background vocals? Rob and uh, Kirk have their work cut out for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. 
Um, gosh, Greg, thank you so much sure, for, yeah. for deep diving into this album. I, I had the fun luxury of listening to this with my wife when I was on a road trip over the holiday break. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, at a certain point, she was just like, "This is how is this, this is a crazy fucking album." Like, she didn't say that, but like, right. it's pretty amazing how much work and time and energy you guys put into this, and it and it uh, it shows because these guys aren't like turning an album out every year. Right. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because of how long it's. How long it takes. Right, yeah, yeah. So, congratulations. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and listening to my chat with music producer Greg Fiddleman about Metallica's new album, Hardwired Self-Destruct. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. <laughs>